Preface In this volume, which deals with the myths and religious practices of pre-Columbian America and their relation to habits of life and the growth of civilization, the question is frankly faced whether these manifestations of ancient culture were of independent origin or had been imported from the old world. The view has been favored by some writers that America remained isolated from the rest of the world, from early Pleistocene times until it was discovered by Columbus and conquered by the Spaniards, and that we should account for the existence there of habits of life, habits of thought, myths, folk tales, etc., similar to those found in Asia and elsewhere, by accepting them as proofs of the psychic unity of mankind. Even the most highly complex beliefs, myths, and deities should, according to this theory, be regarded as natural products of the human mind. Similar needs, we are informed, produce similar results. It was not, however, until comparatively late in the history of man that signs of progress were revealed in the New World. There's nothing of importance older in America, as the Americanists inform us, than 200 B.C., the date usually applied nowadays to the beginning of what is called the Archaic Period. All the great pre-Columbian civilizations, the Maya of Central America, the Peruvian of South America, and the Aztec of Mexico, fall within the Christian era. Indeed, the Aztec was medieval and its beginnings are obscure, for it seems to have been superimposed on an earlier civilization which may have been as old as the Maya. Thus, we find that in America, the early growth and the early fusions of culture took place after China had been welded into an empire under the Han dynasties, and after the mixed communities of China and those of Cambodia and Indonesia had become seafarers on the Pacific. Much has been made of the fact that even Mexican civilization was still in or had scarcely emerged from the so-called age or stage of stone, when the Spanish conquest took place, metals having been used chiefly for ornamental or religious purposes. The Sushen, a people of northeastern Siberia, who have been called the Vikings of the East, were, however, as is shown in this volume, likewise a Stone Age people, although they were known for many centuries to the Chinese as seafarers and traders. The Indonesians, another people, who used implements and weapons of stone, penetrated the North Pacific and affected settlements in Japan early in the Christian era, and also discovered and colonized the islands of Polynesia. In connection with the latter drift, the late Mr. Percy Smith refers in his Hawaki to evidence, which tends to show that the earliest Polynesian wanderers left India, an ancient homeland as far back as the 4th century BC. They were not only daring but expert mariners, and even after settling on the coral islands of Oceania, continued to set out on long and adventurous voyages of exploration. Smith has, in this connection, recorded the native story of the experiences of a great Polynesian seafarer who reached the Antarctic. The frozen ocean, referred to in the traditional account of the voyages, says Smith, expressed by the term Tita Uka Apia in which Tai is the sea. Uka, Maori, is ice. Apia means a, as like, after the manner of pia, the arrowroot, which, when scraped, is exactly like snow. 
Another indication of the distances traversed by the ancient Polynesian mariners is obtained by means of the Meraki Hau, the half-human, half-monster of ancient Maori carvings, which has two long tusks protruding from its mouth. Smith has identified this wonder beast, or as the Hindus would have called it, the Makara, with the walrus, or sea elephant, which is seen only in high latitudes. Tongan traditions refer to voyages of 2,400 and even of 4,200 miles. More often than not, wrote Mr. Percy Smith, they, the Polynesians, made these adventurous voyages with the definite object of establishing new colonies in which to settle. Their canoes were not exactly similar to those now in use. Much larger and better seagoing vessels were formerly employed, we are reminded. Ellis, the missionary, writing a century ago, remarked on the resemblance between the larger Polynesian vessels and those used by the ancient Greeks and the heroes of Homer. The distances between the various small islands of Oceania, which were visited and colonized by the Polynesian wanderers, were greater than is the distance between America and Oceania. The people who reached Easter Island could, it is held, have hardly missed a great continent. That America was reached as possible. The coconut palm grew there in ancient times, and it was introduced into the islands of Oceania by the Polynesians. According to the traditions of the Marquesian Islanders, they procured their first coconut from the northeast, the direction in which America lies. The coconut was anciently grown in Indonesia and in India. Whether it is native to Indonesia or America is as yet uncertain. The important point is that the coconut was carried across the Pacific by ancient mariners. But the Polynesians were not, as has been indicated, the only explorers of the Pacific Ocean. Great and widespread movements of eastern seafaring peoples were in progress some centuries before and after the birth of Christ. The Polynesian migrations were connected with these movements, which emanated chiefly from Cambodia where a complex civilization was in existence as far back as the 8th century BC. It is not rash to assume that there was a psychological motive for these ancient race movements. Large numbers of peoples were not likely to have been stirred to face the perils of uncharted seas merely for love of adventure and a desire for change. It is more likely that the daring mariners were searching not merely for fresh woods and pastures new, for lonely, uninhabited coasts and alluring and peaceful islands, but for something they required, something which they wished to obtain no matter at what cost of labor and endurance. In other words, they were evidently prospecting for precious metals, precious stones, pearls, etc., for which a great demand had grown up in centers of ancient civilization. This view explains why the movements of these ancient drifts followed, as Mr. W. J. Perry was the first to point out, the distribution of the pearling beds of the world, and why, wherever pearls are found, we also find similar complex religious myths, beliefs, and practices. Gold, silver, precious stones, jade and jadeite, obsidian, curative herbs, and those supposed to be curative and life-prolonging, were similarly searched for and found. In this connection, it is of special interest and importance to find that the pre-Columbian civilization of America was deeply impregnated with the religious beliefs and practices and habits of life that obtained 
among the treasure seekers of the old world. The Maya people settled in the most unhealthy parts of Central America, and it is surely not merely a coincidence that it is in these districts precious metals were and still are found. If the chief attraction had not been gold, would not the early colonists have searched for and settled in a country which demanded a smaller toll on human life? As is shown in Chapter 1, gold was regarded by the pre-Columbian Americas not only as a precious, but as a sacred substance. It was, as the Aztecs called it, an emanation, or excretion of the gods, and it was used in the New World in the same manner and for the same purposes as it was used in the Old World. That is a very remarkable fact to which full recognition and consideration must be given. It cannot be explained away by the theory of psychic unity. In India, gold was, as ancient texts clearly state, a form of the gods. We are, in these texts, informed explicitly that gold is immortal life. Gold indeed is fire, light, and immortality. The ancient Egyptians regarded gold as the flesh of the gods, and in the empire period, inscriptions of the temple of Wadi Abad, which referred to gold as such, the goddess Isis is made to say to the pharaoh Seti I, I have given thee the gold countries, fine gold, lapis lazuli, and turquoise. This goddess was also connected with the giver of the Artemisia herb, which affected cures, and was believed being impregnated with her life substance, like the red jasper called blood of Isis. The sun god Ra was believed to have bones of silver, flesh of gold, and hair of lapis lazuli. And in Asia, lapis lazuli was supposed to be the essence of gold. Like the Buddhists of India, China, and Japan, and like the ancient Gauls, the Aztecs of Mexico accumulated precious metals and precious stones and ornaments made of these in symbolic shape to increase their store of a religious influence or merit. There is, in short, not a vestige of originality in the Mexican symbolism of gold, silver, and precious stones. The case for independent origin is therefore greatly weakened by such a test. It is, however, when we come to deal with milk symbolism that the theory of psychic unity is subjected to a particularly heavy strain. In chapter 11, which deals with the milk goddess and with the complex ideas connected with the agave plant, which are fundamental in Mexican religion, it is shown that these ideas and the associated practices are similar to the ideas connected with various milk-yielding plants in India and Europe and that we must go to ancient Egypt to trace the history of such arbitrary connections as those of milk-yielding domesticated animals with certain milk-yielding plants, of seashells with milk, and of milk-providing mother goddess with fish. The Mexican goddess Mayuel, who suckles a fish and is a personification of the plant which yields a milky juice that ferments and intoxicates, had a long history which dates back far beyond the beginning of civilization in America and reaches far across the world to the cradle of ancient civilization and the Nile Valley. Throughout this volume, many links are traced between the old and new worlds, but none is more remarkable than that afforded by the American story of Japan, chapter 13, which so closely resembles in all its essential features a characteristic Hindu myth found in the Mahabharata. 
With that piece of evidence alone, a good circumstantial case is made out for the transference to pre-Columbian America of Hindu modes of thought, Hindu myths and deities, and Hindu religious practices, colored somewhat by influences to which they had been subjected on the way between India and America, and after being localized in the New World. It prepares us, too, for the finding of snake-worshipping peoples in the New World, and likewise for finding, as we do find, aesthetics who engaged in penitential exercises and begged for food as alms, with bowls in their hands like the Brahmanic and Buddhist religious mendicants. It further prepares us for identifying the elephant-like figures on Maya sculptured stones, declared by some to be badly drawn birds. See plate at page 32. And also to find that these elephants are represented with conventional ornamentation of symbolic character, identical with the ornamentation of the elephant figures on Cambodian sacred stones. That Buddhist influence reached America is clearly indicated by the Quetzalcoatl figures reproduced on plate at page 256. As is well known, the Buddhists blended with their complex faith, the myths, and religious practices of the various peoples among whom they settled. Throughout this volume, it is shown that there are ample data which point to fusions of myths and beliefs in America, similar to old world fusions. The American Tlaklok lore links with the dragon lore of China and Japan, along with the Naga lore of India. When we come to deal with the goddesses, and especially with the goddess of jade or jadet, water and herbs, her herb is that of Isis. We again meet with complexes that have no history in the new world, but are similar to those whose history can be traced in the old world. Chapters 7 and 12. Anthropologists who favor the view that pre-Columbian American religion and civilization were of independent origin have of necessity to explain why the myths and practices of the New World assumed at the very beginning those complex features which, in the Old World, resulted from the fusions and movements of many peoples of different racial types. After a lapse of time much greater than that covered by the New World civilization from start to finish, Several Americanists have insisted on the homogeneity of the New World peoples and on their isolation from a remote period. Some insist on an isolation dated as far back as the Ice Ages. They've failed, however, to explain why the American races should have been the last to emerge from a state of savagery and why, once they emerged, their progress should have been so phenomenally rapid. It is possible, granted that America received its population early in the Pleistocene times, a contention yet to be proved, that a people who had so long remained in a state of stagnation should have, once the seeds of civilization were sown, surpassed even the ancient Egyptian and Mesopotamian peoples in the rapidity of their progress. Could they have achieved in a few generations what the earliest civilized people in the world achieved only after the lapse of a good many centuries? When questions like these are asked, it becomes difficult to reject the view that the sudden growth of civilization in America resulted from the intrusions of minorities from centers of the old world culture. When further it is found that so many myths, deities, beliefs, etc. common to the old world are found in the new, the contention seems sound that the onus of proof for their faith must be laid on those who favor the theory of independent origin. 
Donald A. McKenzie. Chapter 1. The Glamour of Gold. An Ancient Quest. American Superstitions Connected with Gold. Parallel Customs and Beliefs in America, Asia, and Europe. Mexican Gold, a Divine Emanation. Jewels Laid at Temple Foundations. Mexican Cult of Gold Workers. The God of Gold. Human Sacrifices. The Fighting Chance. Combat. Gold as an Elixir. Jewels Offered to Deities in Asia and America. Religious Merit and Wealth. The Mexican Royal Treasure. Jewels Buried with the Dead. Why Warriors Wore Jewels. Jewels and Idols. Culture Links Between the Old and New World. The famous footprints of Buddha, which may be seen impressed on hard rock in eastern lands, are essentially relics of early Buddhist missionary enterprise, while the complex and borrowed symbols that adorn them remind us of the debt owed by Buddhism to earlier faiths. They are similarly to be found on the heights and hollows of pre-Columbian American mythologies, associated with groups of familiar imported symbols. Undeniable traces, comparable to Buddha's footprints, of the activities and influence of those early missionary prospectors who wandered far and wide in quest of gold and gems and curative herbs. That ancient quest, like the Arthurian quest of the Holy Grail, had originally a religious significance. Precious metals and stones and precious herbs were supposed to be impregnated with divine influence and consequently to possess life-giving and life-prolonging properties. And they were greatly valued by those ancient peoples whose religious ideas were rooted in the fear of death, of pain, and the frailties of old age. The search for them was consequently hallowed by the performances of religious rites. When Columbus in 1502 reached Costa Rica, the rich coast, and the region since called Verugua, he found that the natives, who were descendants of settlers from Maya and other culture centers, practiced rigorous fasting and continuance when they went in quest of gold. A superstitious notion with respect to gold, comments Washington Irving, appears to have been very prevalent among the natives, the Indians of Hispaniola, observed the same privations when they sought for it, abstaining from food and from sexual intercourse. Columbus, who seemed to look upon gold as one of the sacred and mystic treasures of the earth, wished to encourage similar observances among the Spaniards, exhorting them to purify themselves for the research of the minds by fasting, prayer, and chastity. A similar spirit of religious fervor originally attended the search for ginseng, mandrake, in Korea. This plant, which, as Dr. Rendell Harris shows, was anciently connected with the goddess Aphrodite and other goddesses of similar type, is found chiefly by the Koreans in their Kanji Mountains. It is rare, Mrs. Bishop informs us, that the search so often ends in failure, that the common people credit it with magical properties and believe that only men of pure lives can find it. The quest of ginseng dates back to early times in the Far East. Like gold dust, ground jade, etc., it was supposed to contain life-renewing and life-prolonging qualities, and it is still in demand among Chinamen sufficiently wealthy to be able to purchase it. 
The earliest searchers for precious metals and other precious or sacred substances who settled in Spain before the introduction of bronze working in Western Europe were an intensely religious people from the East, who, as their relics show, adored the mother goddess of the palm tree cult. They had been credited by Siret with having introduced those religious ideas and ceremonies that gave origin to Druidism a feature of which was the Gaulish custom of depositing large quantities of gold and silver in sacred lakes and in sacred groves. The Aztecs of Mexico venerated precious metals, precious stones, pearls, and herbs, and attached to them a religious value. Their native name for gold was Teocuitlat, a word formed from Teo, gold, and Cuitlat, an emanation, and signifying divine emanation. Gold, silver, pearls, precious stones, etc. were offered with seeds and the blood of human beings to the Mexican gods. These precious or sacred things were not only deposited in temples but laid beneath their foundations. Bernal Diaz, who accompanied Cortes, the conqueror of Mexico, informs us that when the temple of Tenochtitlan, city of Mexico, was being constructed, the natives deposited at its foundations offerings of gold, silver, and pearls, and precious stones, and bathed them with the blood of many Indian prisoners of war who were sacrificed. With the precious metals and gems, they placed there every sort of kind of seed that the land produces, so that their idols should give them victories and riches and large crops. Bernal Diaz proceeds to tell how discovery was made by the Spaniards that this practice was formerly prevalent in the conquered state. The Christian church, to our patron and guide, Senior Santiago, was, he tells, erected on the site of the demolished Aztec temple. When the workmen opened part of the ancient foundations in order to strengthen them, they found much gold and silver and chalchahuitz, sacred stones including jadeite, and pearls and seed pearls and other stones. A similar discovery was made by a Spanish settler at another part of the temple area. On being questioned by the Spaniards regarding this custom, the Mexicans said it was true that the natives had formerly deposited precious metals and jewels at their temple foundations, and that so it was noted in their books and pictures of ancient things. There was anciently a Mexican cult and caste of gold seekers and gold workers. Their chief center was at Azcapotzalco, about three miles to the northwest of Tenochtitlan, the city of Mexico. This town was the capital of the Tepanico people before the Aztecs invaded that region. Their special cult god was Zipetotec, whose name signifies God of the Flaying, or Our Lord the Flayed. He was worshipped generally throughout Mexico and very specially honored at an annual festival. Those who neglected homage to him were supposed to suffer punishment by becoming victims of skin diseases, smallpox, and head and eye pains. As Zipe was the source of these inflictions, he was the only deity who could remove them. In this respect, he resembled the Anatolian mouse and sun god Smintheus Apollo, who in the Iliad shoots arrows of disease from his silver bow and thus sends a sore plague so that the folk begin to perish. The plague rages until the offended god is propitiated with sacrifices, prayers, and songs. So all day long worshipped they the god with music, singing the beautiful pian, the sons of the Achaeans making music to the far darter, 
and his heart was glad to hear. Zipe had animal and human forms. Like the Chinese god of the West, he was a tiger. He was likewise the red spoonbill and the azure kotinga. In human shape, he was invariably colored yellow and tawny, wearing a tasseled cap, a human skin which surrounded the upper part of his body and a green kilt. He carried a red-rimmed yellow shield and a spear or scepter. The rites observed in connection with Zipe's festival were of a particularly savage character. Criminals and prisoners were sacrificed and flayed. Those found guilty of the crime of stealing gold were supposed to have wronged and insulted the god, and they were kept as prisoners until the festival when they were flayed alive. Their hearts were afterwards torn out and their bodies cut up and eaten with ceremony. Youthful warriors, meanwhile, clad themselves in the skins of victims and fought a sham battle, taking prisoners who had subsequently to be ransomed. A captive or criminal sacrificed to Zipe was supposed to bring luck to his owner, that is, to the warrior who had taken him in battle, or the individual who had been robbed of gold. The owner gave the skin to men who went about begging alms and brought what they received to him. At the end of twenty days after the festival, all the human skins, then smelling horribly, were deposited in a cave. Those who had worn them purified themselves by washing a ceremony which was the occasion of great rejoicings. Victims of those diseases, which were supposed to be caused by Zipe, assisted in disposing of the human skins. It was believed that by touching the skins, they invoked Zipe to cure them. As the victim who was doomed to be sacrificed to Zipe was during the period preceding the festival, regarded as the adopted son of his owner, it may be that criminals and prisoners were substitutes for sons and that originally parents sacrificed their own children, as did the Irish worshippers of the golden god Cromquak. This king idol of Aaron was, according to one reference, surrounded by twelve idols made of stones, but he was of gold. To him they used to offer the firstlings of every issue and the chief scions of every clan. Another version tells that Cromquak was adorned with gold and silver and surrounded by twelve other statues with bronze ornaments. It is specifically stated in a Gaelic poem, To him without glory they would kill their piteous, wretched offspring, with much wailing and peril, to pour their blood round Cromquak. In Gaelic literature, there is evidence that criminals and prisoners were given a fighting chance. If they could overcome those selected to guard them and then outdistance them in a race, they were allowed to regain their freedom. A custom of like character obtained in ancient Mexico in connection with the Zipe festival, which was consecrated also to the terrible war god Huitzlatepoclatl, who, like Zipe, had solar attributes. The Mexican's prisoner was painted white and had his hair decorated with tufts of cotton. He was then placed on a great stone shaped like a millstone and attached to it by a rope, which was long enough to allow him freedom of movement when engaging in combat. The weapon placed in the hands of a prisoner was a wooden club in the head of which, however, feathers instead of flints were stuck. Against him went in succession strong young warriors wearing the skins of Zipe's victims and armed with swords and shields. 
In some cases, the prisoner was set free if he overcame in single combat five warriors. In others, he was attacked by warrior after warrior until he was himself struck down. The story is told of a fierce gladiatorial conflict of this character in which the hero was a general of the Slascala people who had assisted Cortes against their hereditary enemies, the Aztecs. He had been taken prisoner almost by accident, but refused the offers of Montezuma, the Aztec king, to return home or to accept a high position in his service. He preferred to fight his hated enemies to the death. Accordingly, he was tied to the stone, and before he fell he slew eight and badly injured twenty of the Aztec champions. The belief that Xipe, the cult god of gold workers, cured diseases of the skin and eyes is of special interest. As gold was not only connected with the sun, the eye of heaven, but was of itself, as has been indicated, an elixir. Being impregnated with divine influence or life substance from the divine source of life, it could renew youth and prolong existence in this world and in the next. That is the reason why gold dust is regarded as an important ingredient in the native medicines of India and China. He who swallows gold, says a Chinese text, will exist as gold, but he who swallows jade will exist as long as jade. Both gold and jade were the essence of the dark sphere, heaven. In India, as far back as Vedic times, gold that, one text says, Men of gold with their progeny sought was given a religious value. Of long life becomes he that wears it is a highly significant statement. Gold doubtless runs another passage is a form of the gods. Gold is immortal life. Gold indeed is fire, light, and immortality. Precious metals and gems radiated divine influence, and the custom was widespread in ancient times of accumulating them in temples and palaces, as well as of wearing them for protection and good luck. In Lucian's De Desiria, chapter 32, a description is given of the statue of Hera. Without, she is gilt with gold, and gems of great price adorn her, some white, some sea green, others wine dark, others flashing like fire. Besides these, there are many onyxes from Sardinia, and the jacinth, and emeralds, the offerings of the Egyptians and of the Indians, Ethiopians, Medes, Armenians, and Babylonians. The temple is compared to the rising sun. The foundation rises from the earth to the space of two fathoms, and on this rests the temple. The ascent to the temple is built of wood, and not particularly wide. As you mount, even the great hall exhibits a wonderful spectacle, and it is ornamented with golden doors. The temple within is blazoned with gold, and the ceiling entirely is golden. Precious metals were not used for decorative purposes alone. At a spring festival, they were sacrificed with animals. They cut down tall trees and set them up in the court, and they bring goats and sheep and cattle and hang them living to the trees. They add to these birds and garments and gold and silver work. After all is finished, they carry the gods round the trees and set fire under. In a moment, all is ablaze. Reference has been made to the Gaulish custom of depositing gold and silver in sacred groves and lakes. None dared to touch these gifts of numerous donors. The Romans plundered the sacred treasure of the Celts. 
as the Spaniard did the sacred treasure of the Mexicans. In the Buddhist paradise, the stock of merit, that is religious merit, was supposed to grow in the following shapes, viz. either in gold and silver and jewels and barrels and shells and stones, in corals and amber and red pearls and diamonds, etc., or in any one of the other jewels, or in any all kinds of perfumes and flowers and garlands and ointment and incense powder, in cloaks and umbrellas and flags and banners or in lamps or in all kinds of dancing, singing, and music. Sacred objects of merit increasing gold in the land of bliss included nets of gold adorned with emblems of the dolphin, the swastika, swastika, the nad yavarta, and the moon. When Cortes, the famous Spanish plunderer, reached the city of Mexico, he came to hear of a great hoard of gold and jewels which successive Aztec kings had accumulated and increased. Father Diego Duran, a 16th century writer who procured his information from men that had taken part in the Spanish conquest, tells that the treasure was kept in a secret chamber, the small low door of which had been covered with plaster shortly before the arrival of the Spaniards. The plaster was removed. Entering by that narrow and low door, they found a large and spacious room, in the middle of which was a heap of gold, jewels, and precious stones as high as a man. So high was it that one was not seen on the other side. At the same time, there was in this room a great quantity of piles of very rich cotton clothes and woman's finery. There were hanging on the walls a great number of shields and arms and devices of rich workmen, ship and colors. There were many gold chocolate cups made and decorated in the same manner of those of the gourds, used for drinking cacao, some with feet and others without. There were in the corners of the room many stones for working all manner of precious stones. In fine, there was in this room the greatest riches ever seen, so that the Spaniards were surprised and marveled. No individual king was allowed to profit by this accumulated treasure. Father Duran says in this connection, On the death of the king, the same day that he died, all the treasure that he left of gold, stone, feathers, and arms, and finally all his wardrobe was put in that room with much care, as a sacred thing and of the gods. Bernal Diaz gives fewer details about the secret chamber and its contents. He says that when Cortes and some of his captains entered it, they saw such a number of jewels and slabs and plates of gold and chachuluits, sacred stones and other great riches, that they were quite carried away and did not know what to say about such wealth. Andre de Tapia, one of Cortez's captains, tells that after entering through the door they found a great number of chambers and in some of them considerable quantity of gold and jewels and idols and many feathers. Estimates of the value of the treasure vary from 700,000 to a million and a half pounds sterling. Gold, jewels, and other precious articles were buried with the Mexican dead, and especially with the bodies of monarchs, priests, and great warriors. In the narrative of the anonymous conqueror, a companion of Cortez, a description is given of a burial custom. They made a pit in the earth with walls of rough stone and mortar in which they placed the dead seated in a chair. 
At his side they placed his sword and shield, burying also certain jewels of gold. I helped to take from a sepulchre jewels worth three thousand castellanos. The dead were in need of protection, for the road leading to the other world was beset with many perils. Their sacred jewel charms were believed to protect souls and withal to stimulate them with their life-conferring qualities, as they had protected and stimulated them during the earthly state of existence. The gods themselves were similarly charmed and protected. Put on thy disguising, the golden garment. Clothe thyself with it, a poet sang to the god Zipitotek. Tacitus tells us that the Aestians, who searched for and traded in amber, a life-giving substance, worshipped the mother goddess, regarded the boar as her symbol, and believed that he who has that emblem about him thinks himself secure even in the thickest ranks of the enemy, without any need of arms, or any other mode of defense. In like manner, Aztec warriors were protected in battle by having their armor and weapons adorned with gold, jewels, and symbols and by wearing talismans as ornaments. Shields of pure gold were used as votive offerings, but shields richly adorned with life-protecting and stimulating gold, pearls, jadeite, etc., were carried into battle. Lip and nose ornaments, which had a religious significance, were worn by the living and placed in graves with the dead. Idols were as richly decorated with precious or sacred metals and jewels, and symbols in the new as in the old world. Captain André de Tapia, who accompanied Cortés, has described two stone idols about three yards high, which he saw in Mexico. The stone, he writes, was covered over with mother-of-pearl, and over this, fastened with bitumen like a paste, were set in many jewels of gold and men, snakes, birds, and histories, hieroglyphs, made of small and large turquoises, of emeralds and amethysts so that all the mother-of-pearl was covered except in some places where they left it, uncovered, so as to make work with the stones. These idols had some plump snakes of gold, as girdles, and for collars each, one had ten or twelve hearts made of gold, and for the face a mask of gold, and eyes of mirror, obsidian, or iron pyrites. Mexican temples were lavishly decorated with gold and precious stones and other precious or sacred things, including richly colored feathers. Subject towns and states paid tribute in gold and jewels. The precious metal might be given in dust or in bars, or after being shaped into discs, plaques, and shields, diadems, etc. The Mexican hieroglyphic signs for gold were varieties of the swastika, which had origin in the Old World. Gold, silver, pearls, precious stones, jade and jadeite, etc., were thus as highly esteemed in the New World as in the Old. With all, they were used in precisely the same way and connected with similar beliefs and practices. At the outset, therefore, the important question arises whether the habits of life and the habits of thought of the pre-Columbian treasure-seekers of the Americas were of spontaneous generation. Did their civilizations and their complex religious systems have independent origin in their homelands and develop there, entirely isolated from and uninfluenced by those of much greater antiquity in the old world? Is it possible that the early peoples who reached America from Asia carried no vestige of religious belief with them, that each migration, early and late, involved entire loss of memory? 
so that immemorial modes of thought and immemorial customs and beliefs were completely forgotten, and that after reaching the new land, they set themselves to invent anew what their ancestors had invented before them, and to formulate religious ideas that had long been prevalent in the old world whence they came. Chapter 2. Growth of New World Civilization Distribution of population, attractions of unhealthy areas, introduction of complex civilization, Aztecs as the Assyrians of America, how Spaniards discovered gold mines, Aztec trade wars, Aztec control of gold supplies, Spaniards imitate Aztec methods, motives for acquiring wealth, the aesthetic theory, jewels as tutelary spirits, metal symbolism, the golden sun and silver moon in old and new worlds, jade and jadeite, psychological motive for search for treasure, theory of the independent origin of complex beliefs. The questions raised at the conclusion of the previous chapter are of vital importance in connection with the study of the religious systems of pre-Columbian America. As has been shown, gold and gems were searched for and found and were utilized in much the same manner as in the old world. This is a fact which no ingenious method of reasoning can well set aside. It is impossible to ignore it. We must deal with it, and we must account for it. If it does not accord with any preconceived theory regarding the origin of the New World civilization, then that theory must be readjusted or wholly abandoned. Solid structures of fact must replace the hypothetical bridges planned by those who had at their disposal much less evidence than is now available. The necessity for this attitude is emphasized when we find that, owing to the religious value attached to precious metals and gems, the distribution and activities of the population were determined by the presence of these in different localities. Treasure searchers were attracted to the most unhealthy districts of Central America, and into these carried the elements of a complex civilization, complex religious beliefs and symbols, and a highly developed art, the histories of which must be sought for elsewhere. The beginnings of Maya art and Maya religion cannot be discovered in the Maya country. The activities of the early searchers for substances of religious value led to the opening up of trade routes and the struggle for the control of these caused rival peoples to establish and build up political organizations that exercised far and wide an overpowering influence. The Aztecs, like the Assyrians of Western Asia, formed a strong predatory state with purpose to enrich themselves at the expense of their neighbors. Their accumulated wealth had been won for them by military force and the constant threat of military reprisals. When Cortes, the Spanish conqueror of Mexico, found that gold was so plentiful in the Aztec capital, he became particularly anxious to discover the localities of the mines. According to Bernal Diaz, Montezuma, the Aztec king, informed Cortes that he was accustomed to receive gold from three different places. The chief source of supply, however, was the province of Zacatula, now called Rio Balsas in Guerrero on the south coast and situated about a fortnight's journey from the city of Mexico. There it was washed from the earth. Gold was obtained also from the sands of two rivers in the north coast, in the province called Tustepec, and from the countries occupied by the Chinantec and Zepotec peoples. 
Cortez arranged with Montezuma to send the various gold fields companies of Spaniards, accompanied by escorts of Mexicans. In a letter to his king, Cortez wrote, For each of his, Montezuma's, own people I sent two Spaniards. Some went to a province called Cozula, 80 leagues from the great city of Timixtitan, the natives of which are his vassals. And there they were shown three rivers, from each of which they brought me some specimens of gold of very good quality, although it was taken out with mean tools, as they had only those with which the Indians extracted. On the road they passed through three provinces, according to what the Spaniards said, of very fine land, and many hamlets and cities and towns, very populous and containing buildings equal to any in Spain. They told me especially of a house and a fort, greater, stronger, and better built than the castle of Burgos, and that the people of this province, called Tamazulapa, were better dressed than any others we have seen, and, as it seemed to them, more intelligent. The Spaniards were next taken to the province called Malinatepec, situated about 70 leagues distance from Timixitatan, in the direction of the seacoast. There they obtained samples of gold from a large river. Another party went to a mountainous country called Tiniz, farther up the river. The people there were not subject to Montezuma, and their king was named Quetta Kamat. They spoke a distinct language, were very warlike, and were armed with long lances. The king allowed the Spaniards to enter his country, but because they were his enemies, refused that privilege to the Culuan, vassals of Montezuma who accompanied them. The Spaniards were well received, and the people showed them seven or eight mines where they took out gold. Samples were obtained for Cortes, to whom the native monarch sent presents of gold ornaments and of clothing. Another Spanish party proceeded to the province of Tucatepec, twelve leagues farther on in the direction of the seacoast, and were there shown one or two places in which gold was to be obtained. In some localities, nuggets were found on the surface of the earth. Out the chief sources were the river sands, from which gold dust was washed. The gold was carried from the workings in tubes or cane or melted in pots and cast in bars. In Tenochtitlan, city of Mexico, there was in these days a great market in which gold and precious stones were exposed for sale. According to the anonymous conqueror, it was held every fifth day. On one side of the plaza, he wrote, are those who sell gold, and adjoining are those who sell stones of various classes, set in gold, in the shapes of various birds and animals. Trading expeditions brought Mexico City into touch with the areas in which precious metals and gems were found. Trade followed the Aztec flag, and the flag followed trade. There appears to be little doubt that the chief motive for Aztec expansion was to secure control of trade. About a century and a half before the arrival of the Spaniards, Mayapan, the center of Maya, commerce and industry, was devastated by the Aztecs. And solely, it would appear, because it had been a dangerous trading rival to Mexico City. Other states were either overrun or wholly or partly brought under subjection. In some cases, tribute was paid and collected at the point of a sword. Sealer, dealing with this aspect of Mexican life, illustrates how Mexican trade was nursed into prosperity and protected by the Aztec kings by relating the following tradition. 
In the wild forests of Mictlancuatla, some inhabitants of the city of Huaxyacac murderously attacked and plundered a Mexican caravan, which was returning home from Tabasco with costly goods, the news of which did not reach the Mexicans until years later. The king who was then reigning, Motacazuma, the elder surnamed Ilhuacamina, equipped an expedition to avenge the dead, and the crime was atoned by the extermination of the entire tribe. A number of Mexican families and about 600 families from neighboring cities situated in the Valley of Mexico started out to settle the vacant lands of the exterminated tribe. Under the leadership of four Mexican chieftains, whom the king had chosen for his expedition. Assault and assassination of Mexican merchants are almost always mentioned in the Casas Belli and the native records. Wars were waged with purpose to compel independent states to grant special trading privileges. The Zabotecs, for instance, were forced to allow Mexican merchants to pass through to the regions on the Pacific coast and to grant them freedom of trade in their own territory. The region over which the Aztecs extended their influence, or were in the process of extending it when the Spaniards arrived, was that in which gold was used in the greatest abundance. Where they did not obtain control of the gold fields, they were assured of supplies of gold not only by means of exchange, but by payment of tribute. Montezuma, the Aztec king whose treasure was plundered by Cortes, received regularly, every year, rich tribute from the hot land provinces. In Mexican documents, there are many pictures and colors of tributes of gold, jewels, feather, ornaments, and mantles, as well as portraits of the conquerors. The codex, known as the Tribute Roll of Montezuma, shows that tribute was paid also in gold dust, kept in gourds or cane tubes and in bars and the names of places from which tribute was received are given. When the Spaniards obtained political control of the Mexican plateau, they exacted tribute in precisely the same manner as the Aztecs had previously done. The only difference was that they were more tyrannical and greedy. At the Congress of Americanists in London in 1912, very special interest was taken in a memorial or statement by the native inhabitants of Tepetlazotac, a small hill town between Texcoco and Utomba, of the extortionate tribute exacted and the ill treatment suffered under the Spanish masters to whom successively they had been assigned by the king of Spain. The heavy tribute demanded had, it would appear, brought about a condition bordering on actual slavery. When it is considered how the social, economic, and religious life of pre-Columbian America especially in centers of civilization, was as strongly influenced as was the case in the civilizations of the Old World by the fictitious value attached to such a useless metal as gold. It is difficult to believe that no cultural influences ever flowed in ancient times across the Pacific. Did the Americans follow the promptings of some mysterious human instinct when, to begin with, they set themselves to search for gold by washing river mud? How did they come to know of the existence of gold? How was it that they foresaw to what uses gold could be put? Was it a mere coincidence that they invented a clay crucible and a blowpipe similar to the Egyptian crucible and blowpipe distributed throughout the old world? 
Did they search for gold, pearls, jewels, amber, and jade or jadeite, which were all extremely difficult to find simply because it was natural for them to do so? Was it because they were urged by that aesthetic sense supposed to be dormant in man that they were overcome with the desire to ornament their bodies with jewels? Was it their aesthetic sense that caused them to produce hideous, grinning faces in gold, to disfigure their own ears, and to thrust these so-called ornaments through their lips and noses? Did they deposit their jewelry at temple foundations and bury them with their dead because they were prompted by their innate sense of beauty? How came it about that the ancient Americans, like the ancient Asiatics, Europeans, and Egyptians, established a gold standard and paid tribute in golden jewels? Are we to regard it as in no way surprising that they connected gold with the sun and silver with the moon, as did other ancient peoples in the old world, and that they should have accumulated precious metals and jewels to increase religious merit? and the power of the ruling monarch, and to protect and stimulate themselves in this world and in the next? It cannot be argued that the Maya people at Chichen Itza, Yucatan, threw jewelry into lakes and rivers, as did the Celts of Gaul, because they were overcome by an overpowering sense of the beautiful. The jewels were votive offerings, as were likewise the jewels deposited by pious natives at the foundations of their temple pyramid in Mexico City. Dr. William Robertson, the 18th century historian, recognized this when he referred to the connection between deities and charms. The manitos, or okis, of the North Americans were amulets or charms, which they imagined to be of such virtue as to preserve the person who reposed confidence in them from every disastrous event or they were considered as tutelary spirits, whose aid they might implore in circumstances of distress. In Japan, the pearl, Tama, might be Shintai, god-body. The soul of a god was a Mitama, which as Mi was an ancient name for a dragon serpent, meant dragon pearl. There is, it must be frankly recognized, a remarkable resemblance between the metal symbolism of pre-Columbian America and that of the Old World. One of the Peruvian creation myths set forth that, at the beginning, three eggs fell from the sky, one of gold, one of silver, and one of copper. From the gold egg was hatched the curacus, or chiefs, from the silver egg, the nobles, and from the copper egg, the common people. This connection between metals and castes is found in India. It is also found in the Indian and Greek doctrines of the world's ages, which refer to the races identified with the Gold Age, the Silver Age, the Copper Age, and the Iron Age. In Mexico, gold was given the same arbitrary connection with the sun and silver with the moon, as obtained in ancient Egypt and in ancient Asian and European civilizations. Among the gifts sent by King Montezuma to Cortes were two wheels, the one of gold and the other of silver each one according to Captain Andres de Tapia, the size of a cartwheel. Here, wrote Francisco d'Aguilar, they, the Spaniards, were given a present of a gold sun among some weapons and a moon of silver. Another writer refers to them as two round discs, one of fine gold, the other of fine silver, finely worked with beautiful figures. This treasure was sent to Spain, where it was seen by Oviedo, who wrote of the great wheels, 
the one of gold they had in reference to the sun, and that of silver in the memory of the moon. It is difficult to believe that the same complex ideas connected with gold, silver, and copper should have had independent origin in the new and old worlds. The problem involved is similar to that which presented itself to Mr. Berthold Laffer in his scholarly work on jade. When dealing with the problem as to how it happened that the peoples of ancient America, Europe, and New Zealand attached, like the Chinese, a religious value to jade, nephrite, and jadeite. Heinrich Fischer believed, when he wrote on the subject, that jade did not appear in situ either in Europe or America, and elaborated the theory that the mineral, or the objects worked from it, had been carried to both continents in ancient times by migrating peoples from Asia. Jade in situ was, however, subsequently discovered in different parts of Europe and in Alaska. Fisher's hypothesis could not, therefore, be upheld. But it would appear that the critics who destroyed it destroyed too much. They overlooked the fact that in Europe jade is scarce and difficult to find. Modern scientists searched for it for many years before they were able to locate it. As Lawfer says, it could not have been such an easy task for primitive man to hunt up these hidden places, unless we conclude that he was much keener or more resourceful than our present scientists. The important aspect of the problem is not that early man in Europe succeeded in finding jade, but that he ever searched for it. Lawfer writes in this connection, Nothing could induce me to the belief that primitive man of Central Europe incidentally and spontaneously embarked on the laborious task of quarrying and working jade. The psychological motive for this act must be supplied, and if it can be deduced only from the source of historical facts. From the standpoint of the general development of culture in the Old World, there is absolutely no vestige of originality in the prehistoric cultures of Europe which appear as an appendix to Asia. Originality is certainly the rarest thing in this world, and in the history of mankind the original thoughts are appallingly sparse. There is, in the light of historical facts and experiences, no reason to credit the prehistoric and early historic populations of Europe with any spontaneous ideas relative to jade. They receive these as everything else from an outside source. They gradually learn to appreciate the value of this tough and compact substance and then set to hunting for natural supplies. In like manner, the peoples of Europe and America searched for and found the peculiar clay from which fine porcelain is made. But they did not do so until after it was discovered how the Chinese made use of it. The peoples of Europe and America, says Laufer, could have made porcelain ages ago. The material was at their elbows. But the brutal fact remains that they did not, that they missed the opportunity and that only the importation and investigation of Chinese porcelain were instrumental in hunting for and finding Kaloninic clay. Was then, it may be asked, the search for jade or jadeite, and for gold, silver, pearls, and precious stones, in pre-Columbian America quite spontaneous and incidental? Are the Mexicans, Mayans, Peruvians, etc., to be credited with spontaneous ideas relative to those things? which were identical or almost identical with the ideas prevailing and pre-existing in ancient Asia and Europe? Are we to believe that certain religious conceptions, which were prevalent in Egypt and Babylonia and Crete some 20 or 30 centuries before the Christian era, and others that were rooted and fostered in China and northern Siberia in later times, 
before and after the dawn of Christianity, sprang up in America and flourished there as a matter of course a few centuries before the Spanish invasion? The history of many complex beliefs that existed in pre-Columbian America cannot be traced there. But they can be traced elsewhere. Are we then to accept the theory that, despite their complexity, they must have been indigenous? That they were essentially the products of natural laws and well-known mental processes? Great civilizations, says a writer in this connection, like those whose ruins remain in Peru, Mexico, Egypt, the Euphrates Valley, India, and China, arose comparatively locally, comparatively recently, and comparatively suddenly. They seem to have been called forth by new conditions and to mark a new phase in the history of the species. The same view is taken by Sir James Fraser. In dealing with ancient religious phenomena, he expresses the view that recent researches into the early history of man have revealed the essential similarity with which, under many superficial differences, the human mind has elaborated its first crude philosophy of life. But he reminds us at the same time that hypotheses are necessary but often temporary bridges built to connect isolated facts, adding, If my light bridges should sooner or later break down or be superseded by more solid structures, I hope that my book may still have its utility and its interest as a repertory of facts. The Marquis de Nedelac, in his Limeric Prehistorique, thinks it highly probable that the same beliefs in the New and Old World had independent origin. From the nature of the human mind and the natural direction of its evolution follows, He writes, very similar results up to a certain more or less advanced stage in all parts of the world. Attention has frequently been called in the preceding pages to the similar manner in which similar needs were met, similar artistic ideas developed, and similar results obtained by people in widely separated parts of the globe. He thinks these facts testify to the fundamental unity of the human race. This theory, however, does not throw light on the arbitrary connection between metals and the heavenly bodies, and the fictitious value attached to golden gems. Those writers here quoted, and others like them, who favored the theory of the spontaneous generation of the same complex beliefs in various parts of the world, followed Dr. Robertson, the 18th century historian, who wrote in this connection. Were we to trace back the ideas of other nations to that rude state in which history first presents them to our view, we should discover a surprising resemblance in their tenets and practices, and should be convinced that, in similar circumstances, the faculties of the human mind hold merely the same course in their progress, and arrive at almost the same conclusions. The theory of independent origin is, however, after all, a theory. It cannot be justified merely as the confession of a faith. It must be proved, and it cannot be proved merely by drawing analogies from biological evolution, nor can it be proved by reference to the distinctive fauna of the new world, because wild animals do not build and navigate boats and erect monuments, invent systems of hieroglyphic writing and formulate religious systems. The association of man with wild animals has no connection with the progress of a civilization except insofar as he may utilize them for his own purposes. The pre-Columbian Americans were not a pastoral people. They did not have domesticated cows, sheep, or horses, 
Wild animals, however, played a prominent part in their religious life, as did likewise reptiles and insects. American bees, scorpions, fish, frogs, snakes, lizards, crocodiles, turtles, herons, turkeys, vultures, eagles, owls, parrots, tapirs, armadillos, deer, hares, jaguars, pumas, coyotes, bears, dogs, bats, monkeys, etc. figure in their religious symbolism. If, however, it can be shown that the habits of a non-American animal have been transferred to an American animal in pre-Columbian mythology, the suspicion is at once aroused that culture contact existed at one time or another between the old and new worlds. And if it can be proved that an old world animal has been depicted, especially in association with beliefs similar to those prevailing in any part of the old world, the suspicion is transformed into a certainty and the theory of independent origin and development breaks down. In the next chapter, it will be shown that the Indian elephant figures in the symbolism of the Maya civilization of Central America, and in the following chapter, that the habits of the secretary bird of Africa have been transferred in pre-Columbian mythology to the American eagle, and that the winged disc of Egypt, which was taken over and adjusted to local and national religious needs by the Assyrians and Persians, Phoenicians and Polynesians, figures very prominently in the religious symbolism of pre-Columbian America. Chapter 3. The Indian Elephant in American Art American Traces of Rhinoceros, Elephant and Camel Elephants on Maya Stones Indian Elephant Connected with Sea God Elephant and Snake God Elephant and Dragon The Elephant of Indra Elephant-Headed God Buddha's Elephant Form Controversy regarding American representations of elephant, the macaw theory, macaw and snake, Hindu game in Mexico, Buddhist scene in Mexican Codex, the Central American long-nosed god, American elephant mound and elephant pipes. There is not the slightest ground, wrote Bancroft in his great work for supposing that the Mexicans or Peruvians were acquainted with any portion of the Hindu mythology. But since their knowledge of even one species of animal peculiar to the old continent, and not found in America, would, if distinctly proved, furnish a convincing argument of a communication having taken place in former ages between the people of the two hemispheres, we cannot but think that the likeness to the head of a rhinoceros in the 36th page of the Mexican painting preserved in the collection of Sir Thomas Bodley, the figure of a trunk resembling that of an elephant in other Mexican paintings, and the fact recorded by Simon that what resembled the rib of a camel was kept for many ages as a relic and held in great reverence in one of the provinces of Bogota are deserving of attention. The American writer and explorer, Mr. John L. Stevens, who accompanied by Mr. Catherwood, an accomplished artist, visited the ruins of Maya civilization in Central America in the middle of the last century, detected the elephant on a sculptured pillar at Copan, which he referred to as an idol. The front view, he wrote, seems a portrait, probably of some deified king or hero. The two ornaments at the top appear like the trunk of an elephant, an animal unknown in that country. 
A reproduction of one of the ornaments in question should leave no doubt as to the identity of the animal depicted by the ancient American sculptor. It is not only an elephant, but an Indian elephant, Elephus indicus, a species found in India, Ceylon, Borneo, and Sumatra. The African elephant, Elepha africanus, has larger ears, a less elevated head, and a bulging forehead without the identification at the root of the trunk, which is characteristic of the Indian species. The African elephant has in the past been less made use of by man than the Indian, and has consequently not figured prominently in African religious life. In India, the elephant was tamed during the Vedic period. It was called at first by the Aryo Indians, the beast having a hand, and ultimately simply Hastin, having a hand. An elephant keeper was called Hastipa. Another name was Varana, in which the root Var signifies water, as in the name of the sea god Varuna. Another name was Mahanaga, great snake. The elephant was thus connected with the Naga, or snake deities, which are mentioned in the sutras. Nagas were rain gods. They were wholly dependent on the presence of water, and much afraid of fire, just like the dragons in many Chinese and Japanese legends. The Indian serpent-shaped Naga, says Divisor, from whom I quote, was identified in China with the four-legged Chinese dragon, because both were divine inhabitants of seas and rivers, and givers of rain. It is no wonder that the Japanese, in this blending of Chinese and Indian ideas, recognized their own serpents, or dragon-shaped gods of rivers and mountains, to whom they used to pray for rain in times of drought. Thus, the ancient legends of three countries were combined. The features of the one were used to adorn the other. The Nagas were guardians of treasure and especially of pearls. They were taken over by the northern Buddhists and northern Buddhism, adopted the gods of the countries where it introduced itself and made them protectors of its doctrine instead of its antagonists. The elephant was in Vedic times connected with the god Indra, who slew the drought demon, the serpent-shaped dragon Vritra, which caused the drought by confining the water supply in its coiled body. Indra rode on the elephant's back. In the Maya representation of the elephant are the figures of two men, one of whom is riding on its back while the other is grasping its head. Apparently, the sculptor had never seen an elephant and had used as a model a manuscript picture or carving in wood or ivory. That his elephant had, however, a religious significance there appears to be little doubt. In India, the connection between the Naga and the elephant was not merely a philological one. There was a blending of cults. Nagas and elephants were associated with the god Varuna, whose vehicle was the Makara, a wonder beast, a composite form like the Babylonian dragon and the goatfish form of Ea, god of the deep. The Makara, like the Naga, contributed to the complex dragons of China and Japan. A later Indian form of Indra was the elephant-headed god Ganesha, the son of the god Shiva and Parvati. A Brahmanic legend was invented to connect the young god with the ancient Vedic rainbringer who slew the water-confining serpent dragon Vitra. In one of the Puranas, it is told that Ganesha offended the planet Saturn who decapitated him. 
The god Vishnu came to the child god's aid and provided him with a new head by cutting off the head of Indra's elephant. At a later period, Ganesha lost one of his tusks as a result of the conflict with the Devarishi. Ganesha was, in consequence, represented with one hole and one broken tusk. The Buddhists not only took over the wonder beasts with elephant and other parts and characteristics, but also adopted the white elephant, which was an emblem of the sun. According to one of their legends, Buddha entered his mother's womb in the form of a white elephant. This idea seems, as Dr. T.W. Reese Davis says, a most grotesque folly until the origin of the poetical figure has been ascertained. The solar elephant form was deliberately chosen by the future Buddha because it was the form indicated by a deva, God, who had in a previous birth been one of the rishis, the mythical poets of the Rig Veda. Rishis were learned priests who had become demigods by performing religious ceremonies. It will thus be seen that before the elephant, as a religious symbol, was carried from India to other countries, it was associated with complex beliefs as a result of Indian culture mixing. The history of the Maya elephant symbol cannot be traced in the New World. The view of Dr. W. Stempel that the Copan and other elephants of America represent the early Pleistocene Elephus columbi has not met with acceptance. This elephant has not the peculiar characteristics of the Indian elephant as shown in the Copan stone, and it became extinct before the earliest representatives of modern man reached the New World. Although, however, Dr. W. Stempel, reviewing the literature concerning the various representations of the elephant in pre-Columbian America, vigorously protested against the idea that they were intended to be anything else than elephants. Certain Americanists have labored to prove that they are either badly drawn birds or tapirs. The Copan elephant, associated with the two human figures, has been identified with the blue macaw, the sea plate opposite, by Dr. Alfred M. Tazer and Dr. Glover M. Allen. In the reproduction of the Copan elephant, the one with human figures is not selected. There has hitherto, write Tazer and Allen, been some question as to the identity of certain stone carvings, similar to that on Stella B. from Copan, of which a portion is shown in Plate 25, Figure 8, this has even been interpreted as the trunk of an elephant, but is unquestionably a macaw's beak. The unprejudiced reader will not be inclined to regard the macaw theory as finally settled, even although it finds support among not a few Americanists, and especially those determined to uphold the ethnological Monroe Doctrine, which, as Professor Elliot Smith has written, demands that everything American belongs to America and must have been wholly invented there. This extract is from a letter contributed to Nature, in which the various pre-Columbian representations have been discussed by Professor Elliot Smith, Professor Tauser, and Dr. Spinden. The first named holds that the Copan animals under discussion are Indian elephants. Never having seen an elephant and not being aware of its size, no doubt, he says, the Maya artist conceived it to be some kind of monstrous macaw and his portraits of the two creatures mutually influenced one another. He points out, however, that in one of the figures, the so-called macaw is given a mammalian ear, from which an earring is suspended. 
characteristic Cambodian feature. Professor Tauser draws attention to the artistic treatment of both the macaw and elephant figures. In the elephant head, there is an ornamental scroll beneath the eye, which likewise is cross-hatched and surrounded by a ring of subcircular marks that continue to the base of the beak. The nostril is the large oval marking directly in front of the eye. He holds that a comparison of this elephant with that the unmistakable macaw shows that the two represent the same animal. Professor Elliot Smith writes on this point, This suggestion has served to direct attention to points of special interest and importance, viz. the striking influence exercised by the representatives of a well-known creature, the macaw, on the craftsmen who were set the task of modeling the elephant, which to them was an alien and wholly unknown animal. It explains how, in the case of the latter, the sculptor came to mistake the eye for the nostril and the auditory metis for the eye, and also to employ a particular geometrical design for filling in the area of the auditory pina. The accurate representation of the Indian elephant's profile, its trunk, tusk, and lower lip, the form of its ear, as well as the turbaned rider and its implement, no less than the distinctively Hindu artistic feeling in the modeling, are entirely fatal to the macaw hypothesis. Professor Elliot Smith points out further that the scroll, of which so much has been made, was not borrowed from the macaw for the elephant, but from the elephant for the macaw. The scroll was an essential part of the elephant design before it left Asia, and in fact is found in conventionalized drawings of the elephant in the Old World, from Cambodia to Scotland. Dr. Edward Seeler's view is that the objects under discussion are tortoises. Others have favored the tapir. Dr. Spinden writes in the same connection that the heads with the projecting snouts used as architectural decoration are connected with the concept of the snake rather than the elephant is easily proven by a study of homogeneous parts in a series of designs. As has been shown, the elephant and the naga snake cults and cult objects were fused in India. It should not surprise us, therefore, to find suggestions of Naga elephants in America, especially as other traces of Indian influence can be detected. As Chinese ethnological data prove, the cultural influence of India extended over wide areas as a result of Brahmanic and Buddhist missionary enterprise, just as Babylonian and Iranian influence flowed into India itself. Sir Edward Tyler has shown that the pre-Columbian Mexicans acquired the Hindu game called Pachisi, and that in their picture, writing the Vatican Codex, there was a series of scenes taken from Japanese Buddhist temple scrolls. If, commence Professor Elliot Smith in this connection, it has been possible for complicated games and a series of strange beliefs and elaborate pictorial illustrations of them, to make their way to the other side of the Pacific, the much simpler design of an elephant's head could have also been transferred from India or the Far East to America. The Maya long-nosed god is regarded by those who favor the hypothesis of direct or indirect Indian cultural influence in America as a form of the Indian elephant-headed god Ganesha referred to above. This aspect of the problem will be dealt with in connection with the Aztec rain god Tlaloc. Other traces of the elephant usually referred to are afforded by the Elephant Mound of Wisconsin and the Elephant Pipes of Iowa. It is held by Tozer and others that the former is a bear or some other local animal and that the trunk does not belong to the original earthwork 
and that the latter are forgeries. The alleged maker of these forgeries must have been a very remarkable man indeed. The most remarkable archaeologist, says Professor Elliot Smith, America has yet produced. In the next chapter, it will be shown that even the culture influence of North Africa reached pre-Columbian America after drifting through various intervening areas. Chapter 4. Symbols with a History Bird and Serpent Myths in Old and New Worlds Theory of Independent Origin Professor W. Robertson's Stratification Theory Mental Habits of Early Man Psychic Unity and Instinct Robertson's View Adopted by Miller, Wilson, Lang, etc. Brinton on American Symbolism The Mexican Feathered Serpent Origin of Bird and Serpent Combat Homeric Version The Aztec Myth Indian Garudas, Eagles and Nagas, Serpents Widespread Dragon, Tree and Well Myths Japanese Tengu and Elephant-Headed Gods Thunderbirds and Thunder Dogs Mexican Cactus as Tree of Life Symbolism of Mexican Coat of Arms Jewel-Spitting Gods in India and America the Everlasting Combat Origin of Water-Confining Serpent In his Treatise on the Symbolism and Mythology of Red Race of America, Professor Daniel G. Brinton deals at length with the symbols of the bird and serpent, and shows that these are as prominent in the mythologies of the New World as in the mythologies of Asia and Europe. This fact does not surprise him, or even arouse a suspicion that the associated beliefs of complex character may have been due to culture contact or culture drifting in ancient times. His book reveals him as a believer in the spontaneous generation of similar religious ideas and similar symbols among different peoples in different parts of the world. He and certain other Americanists hold that there is... As Dr. Edward Seeler puts it, in all parts of the world, a certain fundamental uniformity in religious ideas, still more in religious practices, in spite of a wide difference in the details. Here we meet with the theory of the psychic unity of mankind. This fashion of thinking, for there are fashions in thinking as in other things, became prevalent in this country during the late Victorian epoch. It was first introduced, however, by Professor William Robertson of the Edinburgh University, the 18th century historian whose ethnological speculations in his The History of America, 1777, have strongly influenced later investigators in the same field of research. Robertson advocated his theory of independent origin with certain qualifications. He held, for instance, that some peoples were capable of developing more exalted ideas than others although he did not inquire into the reasons for their superior capabilities and attainments, and expressed the belief that, even among the most enlightened and civilized nations, the religious opinions of persons in the inferior ranks of life are, and have ever been, derived from instruction, not discovered by inquiry. Robertson was likewise the pioneer of the stratification theory, which he advocated long before Darwinism was heard of and the habit became prevalent among ethnologists of drawing analogies from biological evolution. He recognized a primary stage in human development, the early and most rude periods of savage life, 
regarding which he wrote as follows that numerous part of the human species whose lot is labor whose principal and almost sole occupation is to secure subsistence views the arrangements and operations of nature with little reflection and has neither leisure nor capacity for entering into that path of refined and intricate speculation which conducts to the knowledge of the principles of natural religion when the intellectual powers are just beginning to unfold and their first feeble exertions are directed towards a few objects of primary necessity and use when the faculties of the mind are so limited as not to have formed abstract or general ideas when language is so barren as to be destitute of names to distinguish anything that is not perceived by some of the senses it is preposterous to expect that man should be capable of tracing with accuracy the relation between cause and effect or to suppose that he should rise from the contemplation of the one to the knowledge of the other and form just conceptions of a deity as the creator and the governor of the universe the idea of creation is so familiar wherever the mind is enlarged by science and illuminated by revelation, that we seldom reflect how profound and abstruse the idea is. Or consider what progress man must have made in observation and research before he could arrive at any knowledge of this elementary principle in religion. Robertson's view of early man is, so far, remarkably like that of Professor G. Elliot Smith, who has written... The modern fallacy of supposing that he, early man, spent his time in contemplation of the world around him, speculating upon the nature of the stars above him, or devising theories of the soul, is probably as far from the truth as it would be to assume that the modern Englishman is absorbed in the problems of zoology, astronomy, and metaphysics. What the ethnologist usually fails to recognize is that among primitive men, as amongst modern scholars, before attempting to solve a problem, it is essential to recognize that there is a problem to solve. Elliot Smith holds further that the germs of civilization were planted when men's attention first became fixed upon specific problems, when he was able to deal with them in an experimental manner and in cooperation with other men to solve in a way more or less satisfying to him and his contemporaries and to hand on his solutions of them to those who came after them. Once this process began, a new era in the manifestation of the human spirit was inaugurated. He emphasizes the artificial character and the arbitrary nature of the composition, the constituent elements of early civilization. It bears the impress of its wholly accidental origin. It is equally alien to the instinctive tendencies of human beings. Robertson accounted for the origin of progress in early religious thought by assuming that the human mind is formed for religion, but he throws no light on the important problem as to why some people achieve more rapid progress than others, why some groups of people were enlightened while others remained in an unenlightened state, despite the fact that their minds were similarly formed. He does no more than refer to the existence of the two well-defined groups of human beings, and proceeds to say that among unenlightened nations, the first rites and practices which bear any resemblance to acts of religion have it for their object to avert evils which men suffer or dread. Other peoples with more enlarged systems of thought had formed some conception of benevolent beings, as well as of malicious powers prone to inflict evil. But although some people might not have arisen to the conception of a great spirit, 
all peoples, and especially in America, were more united with regard to the doctrine of immortality. The human mind, even when least improved and invigorated by culture, shrinks from the thought of annihilation and looks forward with hope and expectation to a state of future existence. The sentiment, resulting from a sacred consciousness of its own dignity, from an instinctive longing after immortality, is universal and may be deemed natural. Robertson's view regarding instinct is frankly adopted by Brinton, who has written, The universal belief in the sacredness of numbers is an instinctive perception of a fundamental fact, a recognition by the intellect of the method of its own action. Other modern evolutionary ethnologists indignantly protest, however, if, as Elliot Smith says, a critic insists that the working of their brand of psychic unity is indistinguishable from what the psychologist calls instinct. Even those writers, however, who reject Robertson's theory regarding instinct adopt his term natural and repeatedly apply it to the most complex religious phenomena. The following passage from Robertson's The History of America, which sums up his view of ancient men, is of undoubted importance in the history of ethnological thought. Inattentive to that magnificent spectacle of beauty and order presented to their view, unaccustomed to reflect either upon what they themselves are, or to inquire who is the author of their existence, men in their savage state pass their days like the animals round them, without knowledge or veneration of any superior power. Hugh Miller, in his Scenes and Legends, publishes 58 years after Robertson's history made its appearance, applied the theory of spontaneous generation to folk stories and flint working, and wrote remembering his Robertson. The most practiced eye can hardly distinguish between the weapons of the old Scot and the New Zealander. Man in a savage state is the same animal everywhere, and his constructive powers, whether employed in the formation of a legendary story or of a battle axe, seem to expatiate almost everywhere in the same rugged track of invention. For even the traditions of this first stage may be identified, like its weapons of war, all the world over. Mr. Daniel Wilson, writing 28 years after Miller, followed him closely in the following extract from his Annals. A singular unity of character pervades the primitive arts of man, however widely separated alike by space and time. Placed under the same conditions, the first efforts of his mechanical instinct everywhere exhibit similar results. The ancient stone period of Assyria and Egypt resembles that of its European successor. And that again finds a nearly complete parallel among the primitive remains of the Valley of the Mississippi and in the modern arts of the barbarous Polynesian. Andrew Lang, in 1884, revived in his Custom and Myth, pages 24 to 27, the same theory, remembering what Hugh Miller, the Cromarty stonemason geologist, a self-educated man, had written under the influence of Robertson. We may plausibly account for the similarity of myths, as we accounted for the similarity of flint arrowheads. The myths, like the arrowheads, resemble each other because they were originally framed to meet the same needs out of the same material. In the case of the arrowheads, the need was for something hard, heavy, and sharp. The material was flint. In the case of the myths, the need was to explain certain phenomena. 
The material, so to speak, was an early state of the human mind, to which all objects seemed equally endowed with human personality, and to which no metamorphosis appeared impossible. Early man required implements. That he felt the same need for complex stories about birds and serpents and for connecting these with certain phenomena is very doubtful. He could not have been much concerned about the supply of rain before he domesticated cattle. And it is improbable that beliefs regarding the sun god and the rain and river god became stereotyped before the introduction of the agricultural mode of life. A considerable advance in civilization must have been achieved before the organization of society was reflected in religious systems, and man became capable of tracing with accuracy, as Robertson puts it, the relation between cause and effect. These extracts, which have been given from the writings of Lang, Wilson, and Miller, are of special interest, because they show that the theory of independent origin has a definite history. Robertson introduced a formula which has provided a plausible and easy explanation for a very complex problem. It accounts for the numerous resemblances, but not for the numerous differences between the myths, the symbols, and religious beliefs, and customs of various ancient civilizations. Although it has helped to promote the comparative study of religious systems, it has, however, at the same time diverted attention from the process of culture drifting and of the fusions in various culture areas of imported ideas, with those of local growth reflecting local experiences. Robertson's formula has been rigorously applied in America. His term, natural, is repeated again and again by writers who find themselves confronted with even the most complex religious phenomena. To Brinton, it is natural that the bird and serpent symbols should have been linked in the pre-Columbian American mythologies, and he displays so much ingenuity in accounting for the various manifestations of the winged animal and reptile, and for their arbitrary association, that one cannot help feeling that the early red man must have been possessed of as subtle and resourceful a mind as himself. Brinton, putting himself in the place of the early observers and thinkers, proceeds to say that the bird floats in the atmosphere, rides on the winds, and soars towards heaven where dwell the gods. Early man conceived that gods and angels must also have wings, an assumption which postulates the theory that he believed in gods and angels from the beginning. The bird was identified with the clouds, and it is natural, therefore, that thunder should have been regarded as the sound of the cloud bird flapping its wings. Brinton then deals with the serpent. The reptile is mysterious. We should not wonder, therefore, that it possessed the fancy of the observant child of nature, whom Robertson has apparently slandered by asserting that he was inattentive to that magnificent spectacle of beauty and order presented to his view. Brinton shows that early man saw serpents in the heavens and on the earth, and does not deal with the possibility that he may have deified the real serpent before he conceived of mythical ones. Lightning wriggles, and so do serpents. Therefore, argued early man, lightning is a serpent. The river has a sinuous course. It is serpentine. How easily, comments Brenton, would savages construing the figure literally make the serpent a river or water god? The serpent was certainly connected with water, but is Brenton's theory of how the connection was affected a very plausible one? 
been obtained in the old world as well as in the new. That does not surprise him. Nor is he surprised to find that in pre-Columbian America, the serpent was depicted in religious symbolism, with its tail and its mouth eating itself, like the Scandinavian Midgard serpent and other mythical serpents in other culture areas. Among other natural conceptions, according to Brinton, is that of the American horn serpent, which is found among the ancient Celtic symbols of Gaul and reminds us of the horned serpent dragons of China and Japan, the horned dragon of Babylonia, etc. The American hero who slays the horned serpent as Marduk and St. George and others slew the serpentine dragon is a god, and this god was, Brinton explains, identified with the Thunderbird. It was natural, therefore, he reasons, that the serpent god and the bird god, as gods of rain, rivers, and lightning, should have been closely associated, and that early man in America should have evolved the idea of a serpent bird or bird serpent, and deified this monstrosity as Quetzalcoatl, the feather serpent, so as to express atmospheric phenomena and recognize divinity and natural occurrences. In other words, the pre-Columbian American genius and his process of thinking passed from the abstract to the concrete and not from the concrete to the abstract, like the Chinese and other lesser breeds in the old world. Despite the ingenuity and easy assurance of Brinton and other theorists, it is possible that, as the hypothesis of independent origin has a history, the complex ideas about birds and serpents in pre-Columbian America may have a history too. Those who remain unconvinced that the arbitrary association of birds and serpents, and of both with atmospheric phenomena, in the mythologies of the new and old worlds, should be regarded as natural, will maintain an open mind on the subject and refuse to be caught in the glamour of a plausible theory which accounts for far too much. It is frankly unconceivable that early man should have connected serpents and birds without a single hint from nature. If we find that nature has in one part of the world provided the plot for the mythological drama of the everlasting battle between bird and serpent, it is not surprising to learn that the combat should have been introduced into a local or neighboring pre-existing mythological system, which reflected not only natural phenomena but even local political conditions. On the other hand, it cannot be regarded as other than astounding to find in an area where no serpent-hunting bird exists that such a bird should have been imagined, and that this imaginary bird should have been utilized in precisely the same way as in the area where the real bird has actual existence. It is just as remarkable to find in pre-Columbian mythological systems the bird and serpent symbols as it is to find the Indian elephant represented on a Maya stella. There's only one bird in the world which is a persistent and successful hunter of serpents. This is the well-known secretary bird, Serpentarius secretarius, of Africa. In general appearance, writes a naturalist, it looks like a modified eagle mounted on stilts and may exceed four feet in height. It is heavy and powerful, with webbed feet and sharp talons. Vero gives the following interesting description of the bird and its method of attacking snakes. As nature exhibits foresight in all she does, she has given to each animal its means of preservation. Thus, the secretary bird has been modeled on a plan appropriate to its mode of life, and it is therefore for this purpose that, owing to the length of its legs and tarsi, 
Its piercing eye is able to discover at a long distance the prey which, in anticipation of its appearance, is stretched on the sand or among the thick grass. The elegant and majestic form of the bird becomes now even more graceful, and it now brings into action all its cunning in order to surprise the snake which it is going to attack. Therefore, it approaches with the greatest caution. The elevation of the feathers of the neck and the back of the head shows when the moment for attack has arrived. It throws itself with such force on the reptile that very often the latter does not survive the first blow. To avoid being bitten, the bird, if the first attack is not successful, uses its wings as a kind of shield, flapping them vigorously. Its powerful feet are the chief weapons of offense. No other bird has been so well equipped by nature for battling with snakes. Eagles and vulcans may have powerful talons and beaks, but they do not possess the long legs of the secretary bird, which are absolutely necessary to ensure success when a serpent is attacked. Stories regarding this strange bird appear to have been prevalent in ancient Egypt. The priests and seamen who visited Punt no doubt became familiar with its habits. It may well be that the secretary bird suggested that form of the Horus myth, in which the god as the falcon hawk attacks the serpent form of Set, the slayer of Osiris. The Set serpent took refuge in a hole in the ground, and above this hole was set a pole surmounted by the falcon head of Horus. The myth of the African serpent slaying bird became widespread in the course of time. In Egypt, the bird was identified with the hawk, and elsewhere it was supposed to be an eagle. An interesting reference to this myth is found in the Iliad. When the Trojans were attempting to reach the ships of their enemies and still stood outside the fosse, they beheld an eagle flying above their heads. In its talons it bore a blood-red monstrous snake, alive and struggling still. Yea, not yet had it forgotten the joy of battle, but writhed backward and smote the bird that held it on the breast, beside the neck and the bird cast it from down him to the earth in sore pain and dropped it in the midst of the throng. Then with a cry sped away down the gust of the wind, and the Trojans shuddered when they saw the gleaming snake lying in the midst of them, an omen of Aegis bearing Zeus. Polydamus regarded this omen as unfavorable and advised Hector, but in vain, not to continue the attack. Believing that the Aegean snake would turn on and wound the Trojan eagle. This eagle serpent myth reached the New World. It is connected with the founding of the city of Mexico. The Aztecs had been wandering for many years and had reached the southwestern border of a great lake in the A.D. 1325. There they beheld, perched on the stem of a prickly pear, which shot out from the crevice of a rock that was washed by the waves a royal eagle of extraordinary size and beauty, with a serpent in its talons, and its broad wings opened to the rising sun. They hailed the auspicious omen announced by the oracle, as indicating the site of their future city, and laid its foundations by sinking piles into the shallows, for the low marshes were half buried under water. The place was called Tinochitlan, its token of its mysterious origin though only known to Europeans by its other name of Mexico. The legend of its foundation is still further commemorated by the device of the eagle and the cactus which forms the arms of the modern Mexican Republic. In Indian mythology, the serpent-slaying bird is the Garuda, 
This monster, which does not resemble any eagle found in India, is the vehicle of the god Vishnu. The Garuda became the enemy of the snakes, Nagas, because his mother Venata had been captured and enslaved by Kadru, the mother of the Nagas. Having enabled Indra to rob from the snakes the nectar of immortality, he is offered a boon, and he promptly asks Vishnu that the snakes should become his food. Thereafter, Garuda swooped down and began to devour the snakes. Vazuki, king of the Nagas, ultimately agreed to send daily to Garuda one snake to eat. Garuda consented and began to eat every day one snake sent by him, Vasuki. Naga had three forms, viz. one, fully human, with snakes on their heads and emerging from their necks, two, common serpents that guard treasure, and three, with the upper half of the body of human shape and the lower part entirely snake-like. Garuda, or the Garudas, attacked Nagas in each form they assumed. Devisar, dealing with Nagas in Indian Buddhist art, refers to a relief in which a Garuda in the shape of an enormous eagle is flying upwards with a Nagi, Naga woman, in his claws, and biting the long snake which comes out of the woman's neck. The Nagas had their abodes at the bottom of the sea, or in rivers or lakes. When leaving the Naga world, they are in constant danger of being grasped and killed by the gigantic semi-divine birds. The Garudas, which also change themselves into men, Buddhism has, in its usual way, declared both Nagas and Garudas, mighty figures of the Hindu world of gods and demons, to be obedient servants of the Buddhas, Bodhisattvas and saints, and to have an open ear for their teachings. On those they favored, the Nagas bestowed supernatural vision and hearing. Heroes and holy men were received in their dwellings as guests. The Nagas were gods of clouds and rain. When, says a Buddhist text, the great Naga causes the rain to fall, the ocean alone can receive the latter. Another characteristic text connects the Nagas with dew. When on the mountains and valleys, the heavenly dragons, the Nagas, cause the sweet dew to descend. This changes into bubbling fire and spouts upon our bodies. A legend connecting a Naga with a sacred tree is of special interest. Anyone who took a branch or leaf from the tree was killed by the Naga. The cutting of the tree, even the taking of a single leaf, brought clouds and caused thunder, manifestations of the Naga's wrath. A great Naga king named Paravaraksha had his dwelling under a lake which was overshadowed by a solitary Ashoka tree. He possessed a matchless sword from the war of the gods and the Asuras, the demons, and caused earthquakes and sent clouds. When he appeared, he resembled the dense cloud of the Day of Doom. In his snake form, he came with flaming eyes roaring horribly. The visor's view is that this is probably thunder and lightning. The Chinese Buddhist text, from a work in which the connection between Nagas and dragons is shown to be intimate, sets forth that there are five sorts of dragons. One, serpent dragons. Two, lizard dragons. Three, fish dragons. Four, elephant dragons. And five, toad dragons. In Indian, Chinese, and Japanese stories, the Naga or dragon dwells in a pool beneath a tree. The tree grows on an island, in a lake, or in an ocean. These lake islands with sacred trees and wells are common in Gaelic folklore. An island in the Loch Marie has a wishing tree and curative well. 
Once a year, the fairies assemble on the island. A lake island was associated with the American jewel goddess, Kauchulukke. See chapter 12. The well-known Gaelic legend of Froch resembles closely the Buddhist legend of Paravadaksha. A holly tree grows above a pool in which there is a dragon-like monster. This monster attacks anyone who plucks berries from the tree. In Gaelic lore, the holly berries renew youth, promote longevity, and are the source of supernatural knowledge. The berries contain the life substance of the tree guardian, which reposes in the well. This guardian, in one of the Indian Buddhist stories referred to above, gifts a favored mortal with supernatural vision and hearing. He can understand ever afterwards all sounds and the voices even of ants. Siegfried was able, after eating the heart of the dragon, to understand the voices of birds. The birds revealed the secrets of the deities. Michael Scott acquired knowledge of the future and of how to cure diseases by eating a portion of the white snake, which, like the Indian Naga, was connected with water. While Fionn, the Gaelic hero, became a soothsayer after tasting of the juice of the Salmon of Wisdom. The salmon dwells in a pool and devours the berries of the holly tree, thus acquiring its red spots. The salmon is an avatar of the well, or lake dragon, and is a guardian of treasure like the Indian Naga. A salmon form of a destroying dragon is, in Irish lore, associated with Loch Bell Siad, the lake with the jewel mouth, one of the lakes on the Galti Mountains. Various cults favored various trees. Thus, Thomas the Rhymer received the gift of prophecy by eating of an apple in the fairyland paradise. He then became True Thomas, that is, Druid Thomas, soothsaying Thomas. The goddess known as the Fairy Queen gave him the apple. Sinny, they came to the garden green, and she put an apple fray and tree. Take this for wages, True Thomas, it will give thee tongue that can never lie. The connection between the soothsayer and the dragon can be traced in ancient Egyptian literature. Na who slew the deathless snake, obtained a magic book, and then knew what the birds of the sky, the fish of the deep, and the beasts of the hills all said. In the story of the shipwrecked sailor, an Egyptian mariner tells of an island in the ocean inhabited by talking serpents. He describes the king serpent as follows. Suddenly I heard a noise as of thunder, which I thought to be that of a wave of the sea. The trees shook and the earth was moved. I uncovered my face and I saw that a serpent drew near. He was thirty cubits long and his beard greater than two cubits. His body was as overlaid with gold and his color as that of true lazuli. He coiled himself before me. The serpent foretells that the sailor will return to his home. Like the dragon isles of China and Japan, and the Celtic Isles of the Blessed, the Egyptian serpent island vanishes by sinking beneath the waves. In Japan, the Tengu, originally a kite, was identified with the Garuda. A mythical story tells that once a dragon, having assumed the shape of a small snake, lay basking in the sun on the bank of a lake in which he lived. Suddenly a kite swooped down and carried it away. Like other Japanese gods and demons, the Tengu was in the course of time clothed in Buddhist garb. It was likewise influenced by Chinese myths regarding the celestial dog. The Garuda was in Tibet similarly identified with another demon and passed in its new form into Mongolia. The Visser, quoting Grundwelds, mythology de 
Buddhisms in Tibet under de Mongole says that the Garudas are described as represented in Lamaism with a fat human body, human arms to which wings are attached and a horned bird's head. They are deadly enemies of the Nagas, serpents identified with the Chinese dragons and belong to the attendants of the dreadful gods. One illustration in Grunwedel's work shows a Garuda as an eagle or kite with a kind of headdress and earrings carrying away a Nagi, a serpent woman. And on the same page, another figure of the same entirely human but with long wings at the back, a characteristic of the Japanese Tengu in its semi-human form, is its long nose. Grotesque stories are told of human beings making use of the Tengu's fan, which promotes the growth of the nose. Of special interest in this connection is the fact that the Shishishu, a book of the Japanese Shin sect, identifies the Tengu with the elephant-headed Indian god Ganesha on account of the human shape in the elephant's trunk. Although Deviser thinks this theory is wrong because there is no doubt as to the bird's shape of the Tengu, it should not, however, surprise us to find that the kite demon, having been identified with the Chinese celestial dog, should also be fused with the Indian elephant. The Japanese Tengu, as a god of the mountains, was identified with the thunder god and was consequently a rain giver. These references are of importance in dealing with the American culture complexes revealed by its mythological symbols. In the first place, it will be seen that the attributes of one class of animals or reptiles pass freely, with drifting myths and doctrines, to another class, that birds, dogs, and even elephants may be fused, and that birdmen, dogmen, and elephantmen may, as gods or demons, represent precisely the same idea or a similar group of ideas. In one country, the eagle or vulture and in another, the kite took the place of the original secretary bird as the destroyer of serpents. The serpent-slaying bird was depicted in a local natural form, or as a composite wonder beast or wonder man. The long-nosed tengu of Japan, in semi-human shape, is a form of the original kite and possesses the attributes of the celestial dog of China and of the elephant-headed deity Ganesha of India. It is possible, therefore, that the long-nosed god of America may be identified with an eagle, a macaw, or an elephant, or with a thunder god and a rain god. It may have all been any of these, or all of these, in one. The Buddhists make peace between the birdmen, the garudas, and the snakemen and snake women. Birds and serpents were united as allies and worshippers of Buddha. In the winged dragon, the old world feathered serpent, we have the union of these ancient enemies symbolized. A composite deity of partly human shape, as a wonder beast, or as a long-nosed being, possessed the combined attributes of the original anthropomorphic deities and their animal symbols, and of the original enemies, the secretary bird and the snake, that is, of the Egyptian falcon god Horus and his enemy Set as the roaring serpent. The Mexican eagle with the snake caught in beak and talons is therefore like the Garuda eagle of India, which similarly preys on snakes. Both are mythical bird gods. Both have their history as mythological beings rooted in remote times in a distant area of origin. As has been shown, the myth of the tree which grows over the pool or lake in some sacred spot 
and especially on an island, is of complex character. The tree varies in different countries. It may be an oak, a rowan, a hazel, a palm, a vine, a sycamore, or, as we go eastward, a peach tree, plum tree, or cassia tree, China, or an orange tree, Japan. It is the tree or plant of life. In the Mexican national symbol, a cactus stands for the tree or plant of life. The oracle bird in various mythologies sits on the tree, and the serpent, as the guardian of the tree, lives in the pool as a fish or a serpent dragon. Tree, bird, serpent, and fish, or toad, are avatars of the deity who dwells beneath the lake or pool, as does the Naga king in Indian myths. In Mexican mythology, the gods of rain, the Tlacloks, have their dwelling beneath the cactus on the rocky island of the lake. They were consulted by the priests as the oracle bird was by the Celtic druid. The Aztecs were advised by the Tlacloks to build their capital around the sacred lake. The sacred island, with its sacred tree or plant and sacred well, is found, as has been indicated, in many mythologies and in many folk stories. It is the dragon island or fairy island or an island of the blessed in various countries from China to Scotland. The original, or at any rate the most ancient island with a life-giving well and tree, is referred to in the Egyptian pyramid texts. Beyond the eastern horizon, the souls of pharaohs were led by Horus in his form of a gorgeous green falcon which was the morning star, to the tree of life in the mysterious isle of the midst of the field of offerings. Above the island are the gods as swallows, the swallows being the imperishable stars. Gods and pharaohs are fed on the fruit of the tree and drink of the water of life from the well, or receive food and water from the goddess in the tree, the goddess being the great mother, Hathor, of the sky and the sun. The mother goddess is the source of all life and the food giver who sends the water of life as rain, dew, or river floods. The moisture comes from her sacred well. She is associated with the god who controls the water supply and the food supply. The god who instructs and guides mankind and leads the soul to the tree and well of life in his falcon form. The struggle between bird and reptile, which results in the production of fertilizing moisture, is the struggle of the forces that control the elements. When the moisture-retaining snake is slain, the water of life is released. The Mexican eagle snake, symbol of the Aztecs, was a guarantee of an assured water supply. The moisture-retaining cactus is the plant from which the fertilizing moisture issues. One drop of the fertilizing moisture will produce a flood. The Egyptians believed that the Nile rose in flood after a tear fell from Sirius, the star of the mother goddess, on the night of the drop. The same idea is found in the Japanese story already referred to of the Tengu carrying off the dragon in the shape of a small snake. The Tengu drops the snake into a deep cleft in the rock, knowing well that the latter cannot take his own shape nor fly through the air without the aid of water, though even a single drop. A few days later, the long-nosed Tengu carried off a priest who was about to fill his pitcher at a well and dropped him in the same cleft. There was fortunately a drop of water in the picture. 
The dragon, strengthened by the drop of water that is left in the pitcher, changes at once into a little boy, flies into the air amidst thunder and lightning with the priest on his back. Dragons in Chinese and Japanese lore frequently appear as little boys or little girls. The fact that children were sacrificed in Mexico to Tlatloc by being thrown into his lake is significant in this connection. A single element in the Mexican symbol remains to be dealt with. This is the stone or rock from which the cactus springs. As a rule, it is depicted in symbolic shape. Here we appear to have another form of a deity who may be shown as a standing stone, a pillar, or a mountain. The mountain splits to give birth to the sun. It is the sun egg. In China, stones split to give birth to dragons. In various countries influenced by drifting megalithic culture, stones from which moisture emanates are believed to be inhabited by spirits. The island and the stone are like the tree or plant of life containing moisture. Forms of the great mother, of the god who, as the reincarnation of his father, is the husband of his mother. Tlaloc is associated with the goddess Chauchelutlik, who, as will be shown, is an American Hathor connected with life-giving water, marsh plants, precious stones, and jadeite. The god and goddess are manifestations of the principle of life. Both bird and serpent figure prominently in post-Columbian American mythologies. Bancroft is another writer who regards this association as natural. As a symbol, sign, or type of the supernatural, he writes, the serpent would naturally suggest itself at an early date to man. But allowing it to be natural, a mere coincidence, that the wriggling lightning in the wriggling river should suggest the wriggling serpent to the people of the old world and the new, it is surely very remarkable that in pre-Columbian America, as in India, the serpent should be regarded as a demon which causes drought by confining the water supply, and that it should be regarded, too, as a producer and guardian of precious gems that bring luck to mankind, cure diseases and promote longevity, protect against injury in battle, promote birth, work charms, etc. There's nothing natural about the idea that a serpent must be slain so that water supply may be assured and that the slayer should be a monstrous eagle or a god, and that the attributes of the slain serpent should be acquired by the bird or the deity, of which the bird is a symbol or avatar. There must be surely some very special and definite reason for the widespread prevalence of such a conception. This unnatural religious complex has surely a history. A reasonable explanation seems to be that the early people who entertained such curious beliefs about a serpent demon, or deity, were searchers for the gems that serpent gods were supposed to possess. In India, the Garuda is a serpent slayer, as has been shown. This mythical bird is evidently a memory of the African secretary bird. The Indian enemy of the serpent is the mongoose. Its war against serpents is as constant and consistent in India as that of the secretary birds in Africa. If the original beliefs connected with the reptile-slaying animal had had spontaneous origin in India, the mongoose and not the mythical eagle would have been the aggressor. If, on the other hand, the importance attached to the combat and the complex beliefs regarding the treasure-possessing snake were introduced into India by searchers for treasure, who there localized their mythological system, 
we should expect to find in Indian mythology the mongoose taking the place of the secretary bird and acquiring the attributes of the treasure-producing and treasure-guarding serpent it slays. As a matter of fact, that is exactly what we do find. Kubera, the Aryo-Indian god of the north, is the god of treasure. Lofer informs us that in Buddhist art, Kubera is figured holding in his left hand a mongoose, spitting jewels. By devouring snakes, the mongoose appropriates their jewels, and is hence developed into the attribute of Kubera. The mongoose is here as a slayer, not of ordinary snakes, but of snake deities, a local substitute for the foreign secretary bird in its mythological setting, as well as a form of a complex deity who had already been localized. That the treasure seekers who introduced into India the complex beliefs associated with the deity, which guarded treasure, and the deity which killed the treasure producer to obtain gems, also reached Central America in the course of time, is made evident by the fact that the Maya workers in jade and amethysts had a goddess named Ixtubtan, she who spits out precious stones. Ixtubtan possesses the attributes of an Indian Nagi, a female snake deity, of Kubera, the Indian god of treasure, and of his animal attribute, the snake-slaying mongoose. Before the treasure seekers reached America from the old world colonies, which they had founded, the religious beliefs connected with gold, pearls, turquoises, lapis lazuli, etc., had passed to jade, amethysts, etc. There must therefore have existed in the old world a set of highly complex ideas regarding jade and amethysts before the searchers for them crossed the Pacific. Can the view be reasonably entertained, especially in view of the Indian evidence, that among the pre-Columbian Americans there was not an imported psychological motive for the search for jade and amethysts as there was undoubtedly for the search for gold and silver? In the new, as in the old world, the precious metals and gems were supposed to be possessed of life substance, derived from supernatural beings. These objects brought luck, which meant everything mankind desired, protected warriors in battles, assisted birth, cured diseases, etc. The fact that the Maya had a god of medicine named Chitbolantun, the nine precious stones, is of undoubted importance in this regard. The Mexican coat of arms, in which the eagle grasps in its talons and beak a wriggling snake, is a symbol not only of an independent American nation, but of ancient American civilization, which, like modern American civilization, had its origin in the Old World. The everlasting combat between bird and reptile is, in the New World, a mythical one. But in Africa, it continues to be waged between two natural enemies. As it chanced, the bird and the serpent were incorporated at an early period into the complex mythology of that progressive people, the ancient Egyptians, whose seafarers reached and colonized distant lands and introduced into them the elements of their culture. The process of culture mixing that resulted can still be traced in India, China, Indonesia, Polynesia, and in pre-Columbian America. The ancient colonies that were founded budded fresh colonies, and the original mythological system, in which the everlasting combat between an animal and a reptile remained embedded like a fly in amber, was carried far and wide. 
It may be noted here that the strange conception of a water-confining serpent has its history in ancient Egypt. The two goddesses of Upper and Lower Egypt had vulture forms and snake forms. After the two lands were united, these goddesses were regarded as the female counterparts of the Nile god Happy, and the one acquired the attributes of the other. They also became fused with the milk-yielding cow form of Hathor, and were referred to in the pyramid texts as the two mothers, the two vultures with long hair and hanging breasts. In the cavern source of the Nile, the serpent mother was the controller of the river, who sent the inundation once a year. It was because the Nile shrinks until June and then suddenly begins to flood that the water-controlling deity was regarded as the confiner as well as the giver of water. The myth is in Egypt a record of natural phenomena. Bird and serpent were associated because in Egypt the political fusion brought about a fusion of cults. The secretary bird illustration was superimposed on the Egyptian myth. As will be shown in the next chapter, another complex symbol, which is closely associated with that of the secretary bird and snake, was likewise carried to distant parts from the same area of origin, and it affords unmistakable proof of the far-spread and persisting influence of Egyptian culture in ancient times. The north, which is black, influences the kidneys and bladder. The south, when red, influences the heart and intestines, and when yellow, the spleen. While the west, which is white, influences the lungs and small intestines. And the east, which is blue or green, influences the liver and gall. De Groot shows that the various cardinal points are in the complex Chinese religious systems connected with the seasons, the elements, and the heavenly bodies. The east, controlled by the blue dragon, is connected with the spring, with wood, and the planet Jupiter. The south, controlled by the red bird, is connected with the summer, fire, the sun, and the planet Mars. The west, controlled by the white tiger, is connected with autumn, wind, metal, and the planet Venus. The north, controlled by the black tortoise, is connected with winter, cold water, and the planet Mercury. Here the beliefs connected with alchemy and astrology are closely associated. The wind and the west gives birth to metal, noble metal, and enters the lungs, and Venus as the golden Aphrodite, or golden Hathor, is connected with metals. While the sun heats of the red south, which gives birth to fire, is in the heart, and the red planet Mars is controller. In ancient Egypt, red, which is the color of the north, was connected with the small viscera. The south, which was white, with the stomach and large intestines. The west, which was dark, with the liver and gall. And the east, apparently golden, with heart and lungs. This strange conception had origin in connection with mummification when the internal organs were placed in canopic jars dedicated to the Horuses of the cardinal points. It is quite evident the Chinese system had a history outside China. It is interwoven not only with Buddhist ideas, but has in weft and woe the intricate and far-carried conceptions of the ancient civilizations of Babylonia and Egypt. That the Maya system, which survives in fragments, which betoken its extreme complexity was of independent origin and perfectly natural, is a hypothesis that places a severe strain on credulity. 
especially as the internal organs of the dead were placed in jars dedicated, like the Horus jars of Egypt, to the four cardinal points. It involves not only a belief in the theory of psychic unity, but necessitates the conclusion that the pre-Columbian Americas had precisely the same experiences and the same history in similar environments as the peoples of the Old World, and that the process of culture mixing was identical, or almost so. It is possible that widely separated peoples should have evolved the same arbitrary and artificial system of connecting colors with time and space. But the points of the compass and the gods of these points and of connecting these colors and gods with wood, water, wind, and metal, and the internal organs of the body. It is not possible to account for such connections by American evidence alone. The history of the culture-mixing process cannot be traced in America. On the other hand, the connections in China are most plausibly affected in the elaborate feng shui system, the history of which can be traced to India and beyond. It is quite inconceivable that the elaborate American system was not developed, as was the Chinese system, from imported complex ideas originally based on experiences of the natural phenomena of a distant culture area, where a theorizing priesthood interpreted them in the light of their own particular traditions, experiences, and discoveries, and under pressure of distinctive political influences that necessitated a fusion of the ideas of rival cults. The pre-Columbian religious system is from the outset too complex and too artificial to have had independent origin as its history cannot be traced in the New World, but can be in the Old World, the conclusion is inevitable that the influence of the Old World was at one time active and stimulating. The questions therefore arise, one, whence the ancient influence or influences emanated, and two, what people or peoples reached America in pre-Columbian times, and three, what route or routes did they follow? Thank you for listening to this sample. To continue listening to this book and for access to all of our other full audiobooks, please subscribe for $7.77 per month. Go to adultbrain.ca or follow the link in the show notes. This will be a completely separate podcast with a new RSS feed and will have all the titles from this feed as well. Thank you for your help and support in bringing rare and forgotten books to audio for the world.